Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, and I'm looking forward to this topic, which for me has brought both a lot of anguish and mm. a lot of healing. And I think yeah. it could well be true for others too. Totally. Very much the same for me. Today, we're going to be focusing on something that I think, as you said, is just one of the hardest things for people and one of the things that people struggle with the most, and that's forgiving ourselves. Because we all make mistakes in life. I've definitely messed up. I'm sure you have too from time to time, Dad. I've been around for one or two of them, but just one or two of them. <laughs> Folks, we should multiply that number by at least 100, <laughs> if not another order of magnitude, but okay. Yeah, for sure. Totally the same. And I've also done things that, frankly, I'm not super proud of, particularly with the benefit of hindsight. And for really understandable reasons, there is just a ton of material out there in the space focused on how do you recover and repair and heal and move on in life when you're the person who is injured by somebody else. But what about when you are the injurer? And there's some appropriate line here between, on the one hand, accepting blame and feeling the pain and making appropriate amends. And on the other hand, recognizing when you've done what you've done, coming to peace and letting yourself live from now on. So we're going to get into all of that today. But before we start, a couple of quick reminders. First, remember to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're currently listening to it on which really helps us out. And then second, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive bonuses like deep dives into the research behind each episode, transcripts, and ad-free versions of every episode. So Dad, one of the things that really stands out to me about forgiveness is just how many misunderstandings there are, I think, out there about what forgiveness means. People have a lot of really strong feelings about this stuff. And it's it's common to see people make a lot of assumptions, often oriented about the idea that like when you're forgiving somebody else, you're essentially wiping things clean or giving them a pass for whatever they did. So I would just love if you kind of set this up a little bit here in terms of some of the most common myths and misunderstandings that you think people have about this. There's the classic full pardon forgiveness. We could call it that. I call it that. You and I both call it that. In which you basically release any pursuit of justice, mm. including punishment, regarding that other person. There's often a restoration of relationship with them and just a sense of just wiping it clean. You've commuted their sentence and you're prepared to really move forward again fully. That kind of full pardon forgiveness is really beautiful when it's authentic and appropriate, to be sure. There is another kind of forgiveness in which we don't go to the position of a full pardon, but we disentangle ourselves from holding on to resentments and vengeance that preoccupy us and hurt us mm -hmm. and harm us. But in both a full pardon and disentangled forgiveness, there's a very important point here, which is that we can still retain our clarity about what happened, and we can retain our values about whether what happened was good or bad, right or wrong, or how bad it was. That's separate from, that's separate from whether we move into forgiveness. In other words, we can both offer someone a full pardon without approving of what they've done, 
In fact, one of the things that really can help you have a full pardon for someone is to recognize in them an absolute clarity from the heart, from the marrow of their soul, that they feel sorry about what they did and will never, ever, ever, ever do it again. That really facilitates a true pardon. You don't always get that with disentangled forgiveness, which a lot is for yourself, not so much for the other person, but we can get into those distinctions too. What do you think about that? When I talk with other people who have a hard time with forgiveness, there's often this story that they're carrying around inside of themselves about, okay, if I forgive somebody else for something, then that means that I'm okay with it, I'm not concerned about it happening again in the future, and I think that they're a good person. And I just don't think that any of those things are true. I don't think that forgiving somebody else is inviting them back into your life necessarily in the same capacity that they were in it before. It's not necessarily. Necessarily, exactly, yeah. And and like that's what it's all about here, right? Because for me, forgiveness is is two things. It's deburdening and it's clear-seeing. Can you unpack that? Yeah, yeah, totally. So when we forgive somebody else for what they've done, what's our goal? Like, what are we trying to do? Well, we're generally trying to deburden them. We're trying to say, hey, look, I don't want you to carry the pain of the shame or the remorse or the whatever around with you anymore. Or maybe I want you to feel a little bit of shame and remorse, but not a lot of shame and remorse anymore because it's impeding our relationship in some kind of way. That pain is actually getting in the way of our relationship being the way that we both want it to be. So that's one option. That's super wise. As an observation, Forrest. Hmm, Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I haven't heard anyone make that observation. It's like you're clearing something that's between you. Mm -hmm. Their pain is between you. Yeah. Their excessive pain or their unnecessary pain that they're kind of stuck in is between you. Mm. That's actually really important to highlight. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And much the same way when we forgive ourselves, right? One of the big goals is we're trying to put the stone down to some extent, right? We're trying to let go of something that's currently weighing on us. And there's a natural balance there that we're going to talk about a lot during this episode about what the right amount of burden is with all of these things. And then kind of coupled to that, often when you're forgiving somebody else, there's a clear seeing of them, of all of the parts that make them up, how they are more than just this one thing that they did or this one issue that emerged inside of your relationship. Maybe you see the broader circumstances that led them to do what they did. And what I think is really important is that in both of those things, there's very little that has to do with approval of what happened. And when I think of self-forgiveness in particular, it's really not about approval. There are things that I did when I was younger that I don't even know if I really like fully forgive myself for in that kind of like, oh, I, I just, I think it was okay kind of way. I did a dumb thing. It hurt myself or somebody else. And I was often rightly punished for it. And It's more just that I don't think that there's a lot of value in me continuing to like marinate in the shame or anger beyond the recognition of what happened and taking real steps to change in some kind of a positive way. And often the self-forgiveness can actually support us in making those changes. You dropped a phrase in there that really struck me. Mm. Rightly punished. Yeah, And that then opens up this whole inquiry into what is appropriate remorse, including, in effect, the the punishment, in air quotes, but really the consequence, the cause Mm -hmm. and effect that's appropriate in terms of our own unpleasant experience. Remorse is an unpleasant experience. 
And so what's appropriate here? What's, what's deserved? What's proportionate? What's just, frankly? Remorse, guilt, shame is an internalized justice system. Mm. And much as there can be excesses in the societal justice system, in air quotes, that are way out of proportion or deeply unfair or deeply wrong, our internalized justice system can go way overboard. That said, having a justice system at the societal level and also at the psychological internalized level are both really, really important. We want them to be healthy justice systems, right? Yeah. Humane and compassionate justice systems, whether they're externalized in society or internalized within the individual. Mm. Yeah, so just like you were saying, there's a fairness and an equity part to this whole thing where we can go through a process of trying to figure out what the right amount of feeling bad is about something that we did if such a thing exists. And I think that to help us do that, it can it can be helpful to just generate some thinking on what healthy remorse looks like and what distinguishes it maybe from unhealthy forms of guilt or remorse. And so for me at least, and I'll just run these by you, dad, and let me know what you think. Healthy remorse generally includes taking responsibility on some level for whatever it was that you did that you think was problematic. And also alongside that, being really accountable about what happened. Your goal is to not do this thing again in the future. You want to apologize for it. You want to be clear about that apology with others. You want to really communicate it, that you think that whatever happened wasn't appropriate, if that's truly what you think. And then alongside that, there's this proportionality aspect that I think that you're talking about there in terms of having an equitable justice system, internal or external, where I can think of things like there was a dream that I remember vividly from a long time ago. And this is, I feel like I'm kind of outing myself here and Freud would probably have a lot to say about this. But like there was this dream where there was a dog in it and the dog was like sad and sick or something, you know, very, very pitiable figure. And I like gave the dog a cookie and the dog really liked the cookie. And for whatever reason, in dream logic, I like couldn't access another cookie. That was the only cookie that I had. And the dog was just very sad that it didn't have another cookie. And I just felt so bad that I didn't have another cookie to give the dog. And I remember waking up and just like feeling covered in a blanket of shame. And this example is deliberately kind of the most ridiculous example possible, right? You know, it happened in a dream. It wasn't a big deal. It's a, you know, what are we talking about here? But I just think that it shows how easy it is for our brain to get stimulated, particularly if it's in a vulnerable state, like when you're asleep, into feeling really awful about yourself in a disproportionate kind of way. And and I do think that a lot of the time, people have really served their time in that internal justice system, and they are still just killing themselves mm. for whatever it was that they did. Can I ask you about that dream? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So as you know, in our family, I love dreams. And also, I, I was trained in a Jungian frame for looking at dreams, in, including in which there's deep respect for the dream and not over-interpretation. And dreams even regarded as like a work of art. Mm. that don't have a meaning that can be interpreted. They they are what they are. Okay, all that said, roughly, how old were you when you had that dream? I was late teens, early 20s, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. Were there other 
people involved or kind of shadowy figures maybe around you and the dog or was it just you and the dog? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that there were there were other things. I, I mean, this is a long time ago, but it is funny how like vivid dreams can really stick with you in kind of a oh, way. Yeah. And I have plenty of dreams that I don't remember 15 seconds after I wake up, but for some reason I'm still like I have a visceral memory of this yeah. dream. Uh, yeah, there were... There were kind of other people, sort of, but they were very vague and indistinct, and the core interaction was between me and this dog, yeah. Did you have any sense of those other people being disapproving or approving of you? Mm, or more neutral? Not, not distinctly. I would, say, I would say neutral to, like, not... They were certainly not being in service to the dog, but they weren't opposed to the whole situation either. I, I wasn't receiving a lot of, like, external shame messages from them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, to make a point out of the mm. dream and then coming back into the dream, and I really, as always, Forrest, appreciate your willingness. And people should know you are not prepped for me to ask you these questions. <laughs> so coming in, <laughs> here you are giving your body yeah, up for science or little something. Little public psychoanalysis, you know? Why not <laughs> for the greater good? Well, it's a mutual exploration. Yeah. Right. Uh, so detail the presence of others really can affect our internalized justice system our internal justice system in the sense, in, uh, good and bad, if we have a sense of them, others in our life, as being accepting and nurturing and reasonable and compassionate and kind, even while guiding us in some ways, mm. but not harshly, that can shape our internal justice system. On the other hand, if those others, whether they're physically actually involved in various episodes or much more commonly, they are internalized, the internalized audience that's wrapped up in our own psychodynamics inside our own mind. If that internalized audience is generally critical or rejecting or dismissing, then we tend to be harsher with ourselves in our internalized, our internal justice system. An important point. And there's a little example of that that's just stunningly funny. Some genius person in a graduate student lounge, this was published research, over the little basket that's a voluntary basket that grad students would put change in or little money in or maybe a dollar bill for the coffee or tea they were taking out of the supplies there in the generally available lounge, they were noticing that there wasn't much money being put into that basket by people. So what they did is they cut out the pictures of a person's eyes just from some magazine, kind of neutral eyes, and they cut it out and just pasted it to the wall above the basket. And they noticed that the amount of money going into the basket increased dramatically. Mm. And then as scientists do, they started to fiddle with that imagery of the eyes, including a very, very bare bones, stripped down, iconic, minimal kind of lines and dots to just very vaguely represent the eyes didn't matter. <laughs> People still put more money in the jar because they felt that someone was watching. Yeah, and I, and I love this point, and I'll let you keep on going with the dream in a second, because this actually, I think, gets to a really key point about an aspect of unhealthy remorse. Because the question here with remorse and self-forgiveness and feeling the pain about something bad we did and blah, 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 one of the deep, deep, deep questions about it is, who are we doing this for? Who are we doing this yeah. for, and who are we doing it in service of? And a really classic example of this is that there are plenty of people, and I've certainly done this before in my life, where you do something bad and they just whip themselves over it and they grind themselves into a paste. And they're very public 
about this paste grinding action about the bad thing that they did. And it's often a defense against assumed criticism. They go, okay, if I just beat myself up enough, all of these spectators won't beat me up. So if I'm first to the punch, I can kind of defend myself against external criticism by being a really heavy internal critic. Um, And I just think that that's one of those ways that that observational part of this whole thing shows up. That is so interesting. That sort of preemptive strike. Yeah, totally. Right. If I flagellate myself intensely, you won't poke me with a toothpick. Totally, totally. Like there are also aspects of remorse that are a bit more unhealthy that are really kind of self-centered. And that self-centering can emerge again because we might feel like we're being watched by others. So we're trying to project Mm. a certain kind of nature or image to them that is more beneficial for us. Like rather than focusing on really repairing the harm that's been done to somebody else, there's a focus on taking vengeance on ourselves, essentially. And that doesn't actually help them. That just hurts us. Yeah. And I hope this kind of sort of relates to our topic of healthy, unhealthy, guilt and remorse. But if you were just to play with it here, what might you imagine the dog could represent as a part of yourself? Well, I was truly unprepared for that question. Uh, I think the first thing that it just immediately popped in my mind when you asked the question was, it's just a very vulnerable figure. Mm. So if I think in terms of like IFS or something like that, like internal family systems. Internal family parts, systems, yeah. 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 Maybe a, a younger or more vulnerable part. Yeah, a lot of vulnerability. I mean, it's hard to think of a more vulnerable character than like a sick animal, right? So. Mm. Was the dog sick? Yeah, the dog wasn't happy, depressed, sick, oh, discontent. Oh. Yeah, that was a major feature of it for sure is that like I can't remember exactly, but it was something like that. The dog was not in good shape. Well, right there mm-hmm. we have an aspect that does relate to guilt and remorse. Mm-hmm. In other words, sort of the scale of our duty or mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. put it a formal way to the other and others who are let's say sick or wounded or or innocent, morally innocent, mm-hmm. who really call to us from the heart to help them, then if we fail to help them, the guilt or shame, the moral fault, if you will, supposedly and somewhat reasonably of that failure is even greater. So right here we have this kind of in the mix, which also goes to our appraisals of how bad it was that we did something or did not do something, sins of commission or omission mm. in a general sense. Kind of, well, very interesting already. So here we have this, if you will, potentially. Uh, we could take the dog as a dog. Fine. As Freud put it, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Okay. Sometimes a, do- a dream dog is just a dream dog. Sometimes a cookie is just a cookie. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe also mm. we have this part of a person that is uh, vulnerable, hurting, Maybe not so able to communicate. You know, dogs don't have human speech. Uh, maybe could be younger and also kind of more primal, more sort of our animalistic foundations, if you will. Okay. Who needs something from another part of you, the dream ego, the dream mm-hmm. forest, who has something to offer to that needing part. The reason I'm pursuing this a little bit in addition to whatever personal value this might have for you (laughs) is to make the point that we can become appropriately remorseful or haunted or guilty about how we treat ourselves. 
mm. or fail to treat ourselves. Mm. And there, in some ways, might be a kind of possible teaching in the dream, in mm. addition to just taking it at face value, but maybe there's a teaching in it for you, some inner wisdom, including perhaps related to why it's such a memorable dream mm. 10 years or so now later. Yeah, sure. About the importance of the ego parts of yourself that are more structured and executive functioning and deliberate and you know verbal and so forth being generous to hmm. including in very primal sensual ways to other parts of yourself that are vulnerable maybe younger core of yourself maybe deep down inside who could really use a cookie such that the failure to do that or limitations on that, like just one cookie, could understandably stir up a little feeling of discomfort inside yourself, moral discomfort that essentially is a message, an internalized, an internal signal saying, give more cookies, maybe. This is really good. These parts of yourself are sweet. They, they could use a cookie and more of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's really interesting for starters. And I don't know what your experience with this is, but certainly mine is when I'm going through a moment where maybe I'm feeling more regret about something. Maybe I think that I've done something wrong. Maybe there's something that I need to forgive myself for. Or I'm considering whether to offer myself some forgiveness. That's a very emotional experience often for people. Yeah. When we're going through those periods, it's not uncommon, at least for me, to have like very dramatic dreams in general. Oh, yeah, totally true. And as to this dream itself, um, mm -hmm. I did not know where this would go. Intuitively, mm. I just had a sense, so let's, mm. let's try. Yeah. And I appreciate you letting me lean into it, mm -hmm. in which we, we surfaced and highlighted a really important theme, mm. which is that we can have appropriate signals arising from within our being that kind of might feel a little bit like remorse or guilt related to how we treat ourselves, including how we fail to treat ourselves how we fail sometimes to be as nurturing mm. and including and accepting of our vulnerable parts and our vulnerable depths. I'm glad we had an opportunity to foreground mm. that important point here. Yeah, and I think that really ties in very directly to forgiving ourselves in general, because often mm. if we're able to fully get to a moment of really forgiving ourselves for something, we're leaning on those more vulnerable parts, often parts that have been wounded yeah. by other people or were wounded by ourselves. And there's a kind of yeah. reclaiming that can happen yeah. of that of that section of our personality. And yeah. are you okay with me spending a little bit more time here talking about some of the maybe contrasted with all of that, which I think can be a really healthy way that remorse shows up for people, a few more aspects that I think would characterize unhealthy forms of remorse? Super, yeah, rolling right. on. And so people know we, we have a loose plan here and this Dream dive. We went off degrees script swerved. very rapidly, but that's okay. That's great. <laughs> it turned out okay, including demonstrating for people a way others share besides myself to kind of unpack a dream and explore it in a way that could be uh, very respectful and also illuminating. So, in addition to the more self-centered ways that remorse can show up for people that. For starters, I, I just don't think are like an effective way to deliver an apology. And then secondarily, if you're really falling into those forms of remorse, it can be really hard to forgive yourself because they're 
will likely be a part of you that has some misgivings about the way that you've handled things so far. So two other versions that often show up for people are the first cycles of extreme apology and like heavily communicated, oh my God, I'm so sorry, followed by essentially no real change or a resumption of business as usual. Because the whole point of that internal justice system that you were talking about earlier, Dad, is to motivate responsibility and to motivate people to make things right in some way, and then to move us toward a different outcome, a different way of being in the future that hopefully will be better for people. And so if you're just constantly backsliding into whatever behavior was causing the problem in the first place, it's why are we suffering here, if that kind of makes sense? Like, what's the point of the remorse? The remorse might exist, but it's not oriented toward anything that's useful. So I think that really does tend to show up for people a lot. you super good. I could make two quick points here. Yeah. The first is just a nod in the direction that, for many people, the so-called justice system was an unjust boot on their neck mm. of one kind or another. And so they have a understandable reservation around that word, quote unquote, justice. So I just want to super acknowledge that. Second point here is that we're speaking so far about punishments. I'm going to use that word, including that internal wince of healthy, of remorse, let's say, of punishments being what helps us stay on the high road. That's true. Punishments do tend to or anticipated consequences that are negative. Primarily, though, what keeps us on the high road, especially in ways that are sustainable, is that we're drawn toward the light. In other words, we're, we're lived by the best within us. We're drawn toward welfare, happiness, health, healing in general terms, both for ourselves and for others. So it's, it's rewards, quote unquote, that alongside those punishments, quote unquote, that actually help us to sustain healthy morality and ethics in general. Just kind of want to underline that too. The second point that I would make, maybe tying into that, is unhealthy forms of remorse often include a lack of proportionality or rationality that's attached to them. As we were talking about earlier, just flogging yourself for the rest of your life for, I don't know, like stealing a chapstick from a drugstore when you were a kid, it just doesn't do anybody any favors. There's no point to it. And it's disproportionate to whatever it was that you did. So maybe with that as some context here, Dad, I would like to kind of take a moment to make this sort of real for people. Let's say that somebody walks into your office and they say to you something like, hey, Rick, I did this thing, or maybe this uh, this series of things, this pattern of behavior, and it really hurt other people. And I recognize that, and I recognize what I did was wrong. I recognize the impact it had on them. I've tried to apologize. I've tried to make amends. But what happened, happened. You know, it was really real. And I've just been beating myself up about it every day since, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head. I feel like an awful person because of, it, because of it. I think about it pretty much every day, and often before I go to sleep at night. And I just, I just don't know what to do here. What would you say to that? Like, what would you try to move through with them as a kind of process? Yeah, maybe I'll offer a, a kind of muddled tangle. <laughs> 
therapeutic, <laughs> or more exactly, responses from a therapist, which hopefully will be therapeutic, but yeah. no guarantee. And then you can maybe unpack them with your usual clarity and <laughs> add some additional value. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Well, I appreciate them. I've really had people do that. And when someone comes in like that, you can really feel the air in the room change. It's weighty. And you look at their face and they're, they're stricken. They're carrying a burden and they're looking to me a little bit for help. They wonder if they should carry that much of a burden sometimes. It's a heavy deal. So what I typically do is I really try to understand and unpack the facts, essentially, as people know them. So let's suppose someone, for example, has just had their marriage end underneath their feet related accurately to how they had been toward their partner for 10 years. And they now, having come to the brink and in fact been pushed over the edge of the brink irrevocably because that marriage is going to end, they feel terrible about it, including the consequences that will ensue for their children they share with their ex-spouse, right? And they're in the real of that. Well, it's really helpful to try to deeply understand exactly what happened. And in a funny kind of way, it can be healing for a person to actually name without any watering down and also without any exaggerations, which sometimes have this defensive performative aspect that you were talking about as kind of preemptive strikes against unconsciously anticipated horrifying public punishment, but to just really get to it, including especially naming really how bad it was to a person who's sincerely interested. What is it um, in Alcoholics Anonymous? A fearless and searching inventory. Mm -hmm. Fearless and searching and just naming it. There's something deeply healing about that and healing in that they're getting it out, they're naming it, and then noticing that you know, lightning is not striking them dead. The heavens are not splitting asunder. I'm not jumping out of my chair to yell at them or you know, shame them or scorn them. That, that's part of the healing process. So the naming of it. I find also for a person, it's often extremely painful to include this, but it's necessary for a full release, which does not mean approval of what one did, just a release of the, the excessive suffering involved to really name the impact on others of what they did and to feel it, which also must really importantly include a recognition that often much, if not most, of the impact of our, let's say, morally problematic actions still on others goes way beyond what we did. Hmm. It lands hard on them because of their history, sometimes their position in society or the ways that other people have treated them historically. And those additional factors are not our responsibility. And that's very important to take into account. And then acknowledging all that can actually help a person be more open about just facing the full impact that they triggered, they initiated, even if the amplifying of their actions on the other person did not originate with them. And so if we do really, really face our impact on others, it helps us to fully encompass our impact on others if we can distinguish between the direct results of our actions and the amplifiers 
that originated through other causes. When people are starting to go through this kind of a process, Dad, there is often a lot of resistance to framing anything in terms of anything other than full and complete responsibility for everything. And you're making a distinction there around, okay, there are aspects of what's happened here that are probably your fault based on whatever you did. And then there are these other aspects that are related to 10,000 causes and conditions upstream. So if somebody's listening to that and they feel wronged by somebody else, maybe, a natural response could be something along the lines of like, oh, are you you know giving somebody a pass for what they did just because we all have 10,000 causes and conditions upstream for whatever motivates our, our behavior or impact on other people, all of that. And so I just would love to give you an opportunity to talk about that a little bit. Well, if I get you right, what might seem like a just sort of vague, general, Buddhisty platitude, 10,000 causes upstream, actually is really important when mm-hmm. you burrow into a deep remorse and reflection about your impact on other people. Mm-hmm. And it's helpful to really address the impact uh, by being really open to it. And one way that helps us be open to it is to realize that all kinds of forces and factors that amplified what could have been either neutrally or well-intended on one's part, you know, or not necessarily of one's own making. And yet still we can, going forward, really, really, really take into account. You know, a person might do a little bit of journaling about a situation with another person. And I've, I've had clients of mine do this where I say basically, okay, why don't we create a circle in which you put in the intentions, the motivations, the motives, that when you look at them, like my face is right now doing it, you kind of wrinkle your nose and you go, nah, you know, that's kind of not good stuff inside me. Whatever has caused it inside me, eh, I don't want to come from that with people. Okay, that's worthy of remorse, let's say. Then there could be another circle of the forces in that other person that they've harmed that are not really about them. So, I'm talking with person A about, let's say, his impact on person B. And we're talking now in terms of person B, you could have in a circle writing it out the forces and factors bearing on person B, both inside their mind and their temperament and from externally their history that are really not about person A, but they're in the mix. They affected things. And when you kind of do that sort of exercise, all of which added up to the ultimate bottom line result in person B. So my my question here is, what's the difference between taking a wide view of the spectrum of your behavior, other causes and conditions, their nature, these many disparate parts, and just being defensive about it? Oh, huge. It's your intention. Like when you but, do, I mean, I, I don't know if people yeah. are always super aware of their attention in the moment, my guy. Oh, yeah. you know, well, that's what you I, I was like, yeah, hey, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know that you're not just being defensive? Ah, uh, that's a good. Well, in an ultimate sense, how do you how do you know what really is the truth inside yourself? Yeah, I, well, I I do think that it's a good question, though. Are are there indicators yeah. that you can see in people, or things they can look for yeah. inside of their own nature? Signs oh, okay. that, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. So we have person A, you, impacting person B, that other person. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of are sorting out into more or less three piles. What happened inside the other person is the result of three kinds of factors. 
three piles. Mm-hmm. One pile being crummy stuff that you do or mm-hmm. did. Okay. Second, good stuff that you do or did. And then third, other stuff that you didn't do, but still affects person B. Mm-hmm. Okay. And your question is, how do you know you're not just squirming on the hook here? <laughs> you know, deck and responsibility. Great question. The answer to that is you are really, really open to staring hard at your crummy stuff. Mm. And partly I'm bringing up the second and third piles here because it helps us stare hard at our crummy stuff. Mm. I love that. Okay, I think that's, that is the summary right there. Yeah. Is that are you yeah. using this wider view as a way in to stand fully in the light of whatever it is that you've done, which can then be a way in to saying, okay, I've seen it fully. I've attempted to make amends with this other person. I'm going to change in the future. And I'm going to really be at the maximal reasonable level of responsibility taking inside of those three circles. If somebody else says that it's 99% just me and 1% split between the other two, you know, maybe I'm going to calibrate that a little bit, (laughs) but I'm going to lead in the direction of taking full responsibility with an awareness of those other things. And if that's kind of what we're doing here, and if that supports somebody in that process, then it can actually be a really helpful tool to see all of the broad things that are contributing to this. And I, I think that that's lovely because Ultimately, really what we're talking about here is what supports people in motivating change inside of themselves and what leads us to better relationships with others. And then, okay, how do we get the most gain from our pain and stop there? As opposed to just layering pain and pain and pain when we're no longer getting any gain and it's not really doing anybody else any favors either. That's great. I appreciate it, as usual, you cleaning up (laughs) I kind of stream of consciousness. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it was great, but this is such a question in this territory, right? Because it's like, yeah. well, what if I don't want them to forgive themselves? And like, I, I just think that that justice and punishment part of the conversation is so complicated. Right. It's, it's kind of interesting to go back to your example of stealing chapstick. So I deliberately made myself shoplift a <laughs> three by five pack of index cards when okay. I was early in high school nice, that I used nice. for my debate team okay. from the local 7-Eleven because wow. I was such a goody goody. I, I just, and I had friends who talked well, about Well, I'm glad that the statute of limitations has expired I know. for you, Dad. You're, you're good. You're in the light here. You're clean. You're clean with the law. Right, right. So just imagine though that me as like this 14 year old rolls back to the, you know, the owner of the 7-Eleven that I ripped off a uh, dollar's worth from back in the day, probably less actually. And, you know, 1967 or something. And I said, don't worry, I have forgiven myself for stealing that pack of cards. (laughs) Did you say that really? No, no. Oh my God. I I thought you actually said that. I was like, wow, what a power move. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. But, and again, we could scale it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Sorry, (laughs) 7-Eleven. Sorry. (laughs) But your point is right. It would be so annoying. Totally. There you are. Yeah. Oh, I've Um, forgiven myself. Don't worry about it. Like, what? You know? (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) I'm still reeling from the way you ran the red light. Exactly. ran over my foot. Yeah. You know? And I just think that that's like such a such a complicated part of it, right? Like, particularly if it's a if we're talking about a situation where maybe the other person hasn't forgiven you. Like, how can I forgive myself when they haven't forgiven me? And inside ourselves, when we internally do self forgiveness, if our internal self forgiveness is full of self justifications to avoid feeling really appropriately bad about what we did, 
that's not healthy self-forgiveness. And mm. in my experience, deep down, a person does not get a full release if they're doing that kind of faux self-forgiveness or defensive self-forgiveness. The path to peace and freedom, truly, is through really fully owning what you did, no less than that, but not needing to do more than that full ownership of what you did and the consequences of it. Mm -hmm. So both inside everything that you've said so far and as a desire that I have to get a little bit more granular and a little bit more specific with people and maybe kind of walk them through a process here, I'm hearing, I'm hearing some different, different ideas in terms of what can support people in terms of moving toward authentic, complete self-forgiveness, which I think has a key aspect that we've sort of talked about a little bit here, and that's a little bit of pain. So inside uh -huh. of this, aha, uh -huh. and then the question, of course, is like, well, what's the right amount of pain? But you were talking earlier, Dad, about that uh, fearless and searching moral inventory. And forgiveness begins with truth, with being clear about what happened, seeing it fully, accept the facts, be real about how it impacted other people and you, and how it felt way down deep inside of you before, during, and after. Because sometimes what happens with people is they're very apologetic about it after the fact, and there becomes a kind of false retelling of whatever happened when they're unwilling to claim that inside of themselves in the moment, they were quite pleased with whatever it was that they were doing. And what they're really upset about is that they got caught rather than that they did the thing. And uh, that lack of clarity can make it really hard to move through this kind of a process because it is founded on not telling the truth, including not telling the truth to yourself about what your motivations were for why you did what you did. So that's part one. You got to tell the truth. And then alongside that truth often comes a degree of pain. And there's this concept of clean pain and dirty pain that originally comes from ACT, which I believe was popularized more recently by Resma Menachem, who does great work. He's the author of My Grandma's Hands. And clean pain is all of the unavoidable pain of life. It's kind of like the first darts in the Buddhist conception. Mm -hmm. But it also includes often the pains that come from acceptance, the pains that come from seeing things for what they are. And then dirty pain is all the pain that we experience in order to avoid the clean pain. It's mm. the pains of denial, repression, obfuscation, lying to yourself, whatever. And the good thing about clean pain is that when we're feeling it, it allows us to be in integrity with ourselves and with other people. Yeah. And there's an honesty that's associated with it. And I think that that is what's really lying underneath a lot of what we're talking about here in terms of the right amount of feeling bad and is it defensive feeling bad or authentic feeling bad and all of the points that you raised, Dad, about the different ways to kind of separate out blame, all of that. Is this dirty pain or is it clean pain? And if it's clean pain, you can start maybe moving a little bit towards self-forgiveness. That's fantastic. So helpful. Well, I really appreciate it. And just kind of keep on rolling here a little bit. One of the things that's true about pain, at least for me, is that it often focuses us to a point, right? It's really narrowing. Like if if you have a stomach ache, it's really hard to think about anything else other than what your stomach's doing in that moment. But to kind of extract ourselves just from that sensation and into a wider view, it can be really, really helpful to just as you were saying, see the fullness of the whole situation, which isn't to give yourself or to give anyone else a pass for whatever it was that they did. It's just part of the truth-telling process, actually. 
And then from there, you do what you can. This is where all the remorse and repair and trying to be different in the future comes in. Because forgiving yourself for something when you haven't taken any steps to correct it or to be different in the future or to achieve a different outcome for yourself and others is pretty hollow. So we don't want to get stuck there. And then final part, we try to accept what is, right? Like we can't go back, but we can try to make tomorrow a little bit different. We can try to make ourselves a little bit different. And one of the really cool things about messing up and feeling really bad about something is that it often casts your actual values in very stark relief. Mm. You feel bad because you violated some kind of an inner value, assuming that you don't just feel bad because you got caught, but you actually feel authentically bad about whatever it is that you did. And that really outlines what you actually care about. I've had a lot of moments in my life where in the moment, I felt really, really great up until I did one thing and then all of a sudden, all the air went out the balloon for me. And I felt awful about it. And I was like, oh my God, I've made a horrible mistake here. And that starkness can just so clearly illustrate what's actually important to you. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Dad. Appreciate that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I, I think it's like a really powerful part of this whole process where we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to screw up. So, okay, then what's the question? The question is, what do we learn from it? And I think that this aspect of it is like such a powerful tool for that. So to just sum all of this up, we're telling the truth. We're feeling the pain. We're seeing the situation for what it is. Then we're doing what we can. And then we're trying to accept what is for ourselves and for other people. And that's not a perfect roadmap, but I think that it's like a pretty good starting point if you're struggling to come to a place of uh, forgiving yourself. So... That's what I got. Is there anything as we come to the end here, Dad, that you would like to add? Anything that you think that we've left out? Or I mean, we could talk about this for oh, yeah. for literal hours and hours, but I just uh, want to know if anything's come up for you during this conversation. Yeah, a few things. We elaborate on some of these important points in our book, Resilient. Oh, yeah. In the mm-hmm. last chapter in which we have a whole section on forgiveness and self-forgiveness, different kinds. It's, I think, one of the better things we've written, actually. Yeah. And so I kind of direct people there. Also... Just in terms of the doingness of self-forgiveness, I'll just mention a few concrete practices that people can use. Great. They can directly say to themselves, after going through the process that you outline here, which is beautiful, mm. they can directly say to themselves, I forgive myself. Or they can use their own name. If I were to do it, it would be something like, Rick, I forgive you for something. It's also, I think, helpful to open to a kind of intuitive wisdom here and different things might come to you, like, Rick, we forgive you for. And you might imagine even, I call it the internal caring committee, or you could just imagine a group of one or more beings who are, that are wise and good, who are prepared to give moral guidance, but they're forgiving you. You can also even go further and reach out to the person that you're wronged and see if you can engage a process with them that's you know more elaborate and complex than we have had time here to talk about. At the end of it, you could ask for their forgiveness and hopefully have that happen in a, in a healthy, authentic way. Mm. And then last, if I could, I've been reminded of the saying lately, hurt people hurt people. Mm. Yeah. And it often is out of our own hurting, including some of the ways that we've been hurt in our past by others, even to the point of being abused. And sometimes maybe our own history 
of mistreatment, even abuse, is in the mix sometimes when we do things, such as with a mate that ultimately end up after 10 years for the mate irrevocably separating from us with consequences for our children and so forth. But it's in that history that we were affected in that way. Hurt people hurt people. So as we heal inside ourselves and prevent ourselves in the future from hurting ourselves, Mm. then we're more able to walk that higher road and do fewer things that then in the future call for self-forgiveness. Yeah. And if I could summarize that point really aptly related to what we've talked about here, give the inner dog a cookie. Way to, way to full circle of that there, Dad. I, I wasn't sure if the uh, if the dog was going to make a reappearance, but I'm glad it did here. And uh, we just love to full cosign essentially everything that you said there. And I think that a really interesting series of a couple of episodes we could do if we wanted to do it. And maybe, hey, if, if you got all the way through this episode, you're here now and you're hearing me say this. If you like this idea, leave a positive review saying, hey, I like this idea or something along those lines. So I'd be really interested in doing a series on the children of fill-in-the-blank parents. Oh, boy. So if you were a child of authoritarian parents, here's what to do. If you were a child Uh of overly permissive parents, here's what to do. Because I just think that it it really speaks to that cyclical nature of what you're talking about there, Dad. The reason I highlight authoritarianism is that, you know, there are different pitfalls and different kinds of parenting styles. But I think that this is largely validated by the research, that those kinds of abusive cycles just tend to get passed down more in authoritarian families and authoritarian contexts. And so you've got a lot of people coming into adulthood who were raised inside of an authoritarian system, and they go, hey, I'm harming others in the ways that I was once harmed, and I want to do things differently in the future, so what do I do? And I think it would be really interesting to do a couple of episodes on that. That's really interesting. It even has political implications. Yeah, Just to name it, sure. that survey research has found that yeah. one of the most reliable indicators of whether an adult will back an authoritarian demagogue as a candidate is they were physically punished a lot as a kid. So a lot of implications there for sure. But I think that this was a great conversation today. We certainly roamed a lot of places I did not <laughs> expect to roam, but I'm glad we went to all of them. And today I had a great time talking with Rick about how we can get a little bit better at forgiving ourselves when it's appropriate to do so. And if I could really amend my last little comment, give your inner dogs many cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Load up on the cookies, give them to the dogs. Love it. Great take. If you take one thing away from this episode, be it, give your dog a cookie. We started today's conversation by talking about some of the common myths and misunderstandings that are out there about forgiveness. And when I talk with people about forgiveness, a lot of the time it seems like they think that if they forgive themselves for something or forgive somebody else for what they've done, it means that they approve of whatever happened, they're okay with it happening again, they think that the person involved is a fundamentally good person, and that they're allowing the relationship to resume just as it was or allow the interactions that they're having to keep on going just as they are. Or at the very least, they believe one of those things. But the truth is that with forgiveness, none of those things need to be true. 
And for me, at the very least, at heart, forgiveness is about two things. It's about deburdening somebody, either ourselves or somebody else. And then it's about seeing clearly what the heck happened here. And it can be helpful to think about when we forgive somebody else, what's our goal? And a lot of the time, it's to remove the thing that now exists between us by virtue of whatever happened. And neither of those aspects, either the removing the burden or clear seeing, necessarily have to do with approval. There are plenty of things that I've done that I wouldn't say I really forgive myself for, but I get them, and I'm no longer feeling the serious suffering that might have accompanied them, accompanied the shame or the guilt that I felt back in the day. I, I know that I did something dumb, and that it hurt myself or other people, and that I was frequently punished for it, and that that punishment was appropriate because I did a bad thing. And people have done things for me at the same time that I don't really forgive them for, but I either know that keeping on marinating in shame and anger isn't doing anything for me or them or anybody else, and maybe I also know the broader circumstances or context of whatever it was that happened. And those two things allow me to move toward forgiveness, at the very least disentangled forgiveness, as Rick was talking about at the beginning, without necessarily having any approval for what happened. And so that approval misunderstanding with forgiveness, I think, is like really fundamental. Then we spent some time talking about the differences between healthy and unhealthy guilt and remorse. And healthy remorse includes taking responsibility to some reasonable degree for whatever it was that happened, being accountable having a feel of proportionality and rationality associated with it, that the amount of remorse that you're feeling or guilt that you're feeling is tied to whatever it was that happened, and that triggered me into the whole story about the dream dog that we spent a lot of time unpacking. Healthy remorse also focuses on the harm that's been done to other people, as opposed to focusing on your own pain. And then healthy remorse often includes making that intentional effort to do some combination of the following depending on the situation. To apologize, to fix the problem, or to change in a way so that the problem doesn't occur again. And there are certainly situations where we really can't repair, where whatever happened happened with somebody who's no longer in our life or just for whatever reason, like there's nothing we can really do. And I find in my life that in those situations, man, self-forgiveness is really hard. To share a little personal story at the end here, one of the things that I've had the hardest time forgiving myself for in my life is how I was with one of my grandparents when they were in the process of dying. And it was a grandparent that I really loved, and they were in the hospital, and I just kind of didn't make the time to see them as much as I should have or feel like I should have with the benefit of hindsight. And I've had a really hard time getting over that. I still feel bad about it from time to time to this day even though obviously that pain is is pain without gain. They wouldn't want me to be carrying it around, and it's not serving me to keep on feeling bad about it. But it's been hard to get over. And I think that one of the reasons that it's been hard to get over is that there's nothing that I can do about it. What's done is done. There's no one to apologize to these days. And I'm sharing that story not just to get it off my chest, although I suppose that is nice too, but just as a way in of, of seeing how important the apology aspect often is to our ability to forgive others and to forgive ourselves. And then there are more unhealthy forms of remorse, and a few stand out to me as common examples of when our remorse just isn't oriented quite the right way. 
And the first is preemptively beating ourselves up as a defense against criticism. The second is when we feel remorse because we got caught rather than because for what we actually did. Third, focusing on our own pain, which can include kind of taking vengeance on ourselves rather than focusing on repairing the harm that was done to another person or moving toward a new way of being in the future. Then fourth, unhealthy remorse can often look like cycles of extreme apology followed by no real change or a resumption of business as usual. And there's a key idea here, which is that suffering has a point a lot of the time. There's a goal associated with it. And the goal of the suffering that we can experience associated with shame for things that we've done that we wish we hadn't done is that it can motivate us towards responsibility, making amends, and then moving the system as a whole toward different outcomes in the future. And so if we're just going on this hamster wheel of these cycles of apology and nothing changing, well then the remorse didn't really have a point. The suffering didn't have a point. And that suggests to me that it wasn't authentically integrated into that person. And then finally, unhealthy remorse often includes a lack of proportionality. You're feeling just disproportionately remorseful for something that was really a very small deal. I then asked Rick how he's moved through this process with clients that he's worked with. Like, what are some of the steps that have helped people move towards self-forgiveness? And he began with standing in the truth, being real about what's happened, being honest about it, being authentic. And then associated with that, well, there's often a wince when we go through a process of authentic forgiveness because we feel bad about what's happened. There's clean pain here. But the trick is for it to be clean pain as opposed to dirty pain. And dirty pain is all the pain that we feel in order to avoid feeling the clean pain. It's the pain of denial and repression and keeping ourselves away from other people, however that's showing up for you. And then I added three more points in this process that people can go through if they're trying to get to self-forgiveness. And the third is clearly seeing the broader situation. We talked about that quite a bit. Then fourth, we do what we can. We really try to repair with the other person. And then finally, fifth, we try to accept things as we are. We can't go back, but we can seek to make tomorrow a little bit better than yesterday was. And parts of this can include seeing how the person you are today was different from the person that you were back then. Or maybe if you're in the back then right now, like this is a fresh experience for you, you can use this moment as a way to really see clearly the values that you truly hold, the values that really matter to you individually. And you can accept the way that things are today while also aiming high for the future. We had a couple of episodes recently focused on identifying our needs and then expressing them to other people. And I actually think that these shame moments that we have where we feel really bad about something that we've done can be a remarkable way, a remarkably powerful way to identify what actually truly matters to us. And we can use it as a real tool to bring a better version of ourselves into being in the future. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We covered a lot of territory together. We went down some roads that I was not expecting us to go down. And if you did enjoy it, I would really appreciate it if you took a moment to leave a rating and a positive review, maybe leave a comment, say something nice about the podcast if it's authentic to you. It really does help us out.
Also, take a moment to subscribe if you haven't done so already. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And there you can receive transcripts and ad-free versions of the episodes and deep dives into the content. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.